The Olympics are in full swing, aren't they? Uh, and some events, at least some of the events, are very exciting when we get invested in them and, and watch men and women from our country showcase their abilities on our behalf, right? That's why they're there, to represent us. When our country's athlete wins gold, how do we react? What, what do we say? We won, right? Even though I'm not on the track, in the pool, or on the uneven bars, thankfully, I attach myself to the American winning the gold, right? Their work counts as mine. And the scripture actually connects to this representative principle. That's, that's not something that humans invented. In fact, God built it into the way he made us, and he reveals it to us in scripture. And he connects this representative principle to everlasting life in the new creation. And the first application of that principle actually belongs to Adam. Adam was our first representative. Just like Olympians carry our names competing for our countries, so Adam carried the name of every human being in his task to be, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with God's image bearers. But we know, don't we, that Adam failed. Not only did he not win gold, he sinned and threw the whole competition and released a nuclear disaster upon all the people whom he represented, destroying every one of our future hopes. As our representative, Adam plunged us all into sin. His loss counted as ours, leaving us condemned, needing salvation. So what are we doing this morning? So this, this sermon pauses as we're working through Galatians to explain a doctrine that prepares us to understand what happens in the book that we're studying as we progress through it. This time we're thinking about a doctrine called the covenant of works. Understanding the covenant of works helps us unpack not only Galatians 3, 10 to 14, but in fact much of the book, and in fact gives you a framework for understanding a lot of things that happen in, in Scripture. We started thinking about this doctrine, didn't we? Last time we were in Galatians when we highlighted a distinction between God giving the law as a covenant and as a rule. Remember Westminster Confession 19.1 says God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works. So we, we brought it up and now the question today is what is this thing, the covenant of works? Hosea 6.7 says like Adam, like Adam, they broke the covenant referring to Israel But what we see there is Adam was in a covenant. And so what was this covenant like? Westminster Confession. This is the last time I'm quoting the Confession today, I promise. Westminster Confession 7.2 outlines for us, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity, upon the condition perfect and personal obedience. Let me just read it again. The first covenant was made with, made with man was a covenant of works, wherein 
Life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, us, upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. The main point, so what we're going to unpack today, the main point is that God offered everlasting life to Adam as our representative on the condition of perfect works. God offered everlasting life to Adam as our representative on the condition of perfect works. Now, we're going to take this on in four questions. So the first question we're going to ask ourselves is, why is this doctrine useful here as we study Galatians? Why is this doctrine useful here as we study Galatians? So far, we know, if we can remember as we've worked through this book, Paul has focused on justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. Why don't works justify? Why don't works justify? The answer Paul gave us in back in chapter 2, 15 to 17, is that Jew and Gentile alike are sinners. So, because we're sinners, we can't earn God's righteousness. We can't earn righteousness in God's sight. Right? That's, that's why works don't justify. Sinners can't earn righteousness. As we come to Galatians 3.10, Paul wrote, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The law condemns sinners rather than justifies them. Because we're sinners. We can't do the law. But here, here's the question, right? In Galatians, what we've seen is, is Judaizers trying to impose Mosaic ceremonies, stuff from the Mosaic law. And so the question is, what does the Mosaic law have to do with you, Gentiles? Why is that a problem for us? Why are each one of us not born in Israel cursed under things of the Mosaic law? After all, the law condemns all Gentiles, not merely those who have heard the Mosaic law. If we think about the Old Testament, the prophets continually indicted the nations for breaking God's law. Why are the nations who've never heard God's law accountable to it? Not being born in Israel not having the oracles of God. When Paul wrote in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, why does that help those who were not born under the law of Moses? Because of the covenant of works. Right? The, The law given to Adam, which he broke, reflected in its moral uh, demands the Mosaic law. Reflected the Mosaic, sorry, probably put that the other, the Mosaic law and its moral demands reflected the law that was given to humanity through Adam. All lawbreakers are condemned because we all have been given the law from the beginning. That's why this doctrine matters here as we study Galatians. Second question. Second question. How do we see the law's demand for perfect obedience? For perfect obedience, right? And this question highlights a connection in our text. We're going to unpack these 
sort of more traditionally in an expository sense the next time, but what's the connection here? 3.12, right? The law is not of faith. Rather, the, the one who does them, the one who does the law, shall live by its statutes. Trusting in Christ, catch this, trusting in Christ fundamentally differs from doing the law. As we've already seen in this book, you cannot mix those two things for the basis of your relationship with God. When it comes to being right with God, as Robert Rollick put it, the founding principal of Edinburgh University and pastor at Greyfriars Edinburgh, he commented, these two, law and faith, thus far, listen to this verb, fight. Law and faith fight so that if a person would be righteous by faith, now he would not be so by law. If you're thinking about acceptance with God, they are opposed. And we see the demand for perfect obedience in that phrase. The one who does them, the things of the law, shall live by them. So right here, Paul is quoting Leviticus 18.5, as he did in Romans 10.5 as well, writing, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Righteousness, if you obtain righteousness based on the law, it results in life. Galatians 5.3 clarifies the demand for perfect obedience. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. The point applies to any aspect of the law, not just circumcision. If you lean on any work to earn your righteousness before God, you must fulfill the law entirely and perfectly. Now, the the fundamental test of Adam's obedience was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God, and let's think about that test, though. God kindly added this command to Adam in the covenant of works so that so that the requirement of his obedience to keep this command would not go on endlessly forever. It could come to an end. But so that Adam would have a pivotal moment to prove himself and pass into his reward. I think sometimes here the sometimes we hear that condition uh, and that test in the covenant of works as a a harsh command, something difficult to bear, perhaps something maybe. Why why did Adam need that? Uh, I think that's not the right way to think about it, though. Good teachers, good teachers, uh, make their students take exams, not on the assumption that their students are unintelligent or dumb and that the test will make them intelligent. No, that's not how it works. Rather, good teachers test their students on the assumption that students are capable people and should have the opportunity to demonstrate their intelligence. The assumption is that they can and should have opportunity to show it. 
And Adam's probation worked in this manner as an opportunity to demonstrate how God had created him very good and fully able to fulfill every responsibility that God had given him. As Olympians, let's circle back to the Olympics, as Olympians compete because, because they are already the most able and they long to demonstrate their ability publicly with the prospect of earning a golden reward, so too Adam's probation was the opportunity to showcase how God had created him with the inherent ability to to show perfect love through perfect law-keeping with the prospect of spiritual reward. Before the fall, you've got to underline that phrase, right? Because Adam is not in the same place as us. Adam wasn't in the same place as us. Before the fall, the law was not a burdensome condition for Adam, but the way to express his true love for God. It still does remain the way we express true love for God, but we can't do it perfectly and obtain a reward by it. So, we see the law's demand for perfect obedience in the covenant of works. What was, third question, what was the reward of the covenant of works? What was the reward of the covenant of works? Condition was perfect obedience, but what would Adam receive for himself and for us if he had passed this test? Our confession says, as we, as we saw before, that life was promised to Adam, but where does the Bible teach that and what kind of life do we have in view? Right? Let's be specific. What's this actually about? Christians have long thought, I mean, even going back to the ancient period, uh, Christians have long thought that Leviticus 18.5, reading, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That that do this and live, teaches the principle of the covenant of works. Do this and live. Law-keeping results in life. Now how... Here's the, here's the question for astute readers or listeners uh, that, that you're asking me already. How does a verse in Leviticus connect to Adam's situation in the Garden of Eden? That's not the same narrative, right? So why are those two linked? Well, let's think about it this way. We, we know the, the command of, of Genesis 2, 15 to 17, right? We thought about that. Gosh, I guess almost a year ago now. But, uh, don't eat this tree or you'll die. And in this case, we, what we see here is do this and live. Leviticus 18.5's do this and live principle is simply a positive phrasing for the same idea given to Adam, don't do this or die, which God said about the tree of knowledge. Do this and live is simply the, the same principle expressed differently of don't do this or die. Right? Indeed, perhaps it's not arbitrary that in Galatians 3.13... Curse is linked to a tree. 
And that's what we see in Galatians 3.11-12 to 12 too. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, let's, let's think more about this by reflecting on, I probably should have put this on your order of service, so I apologize, but let's think about Luke 10, 25 to 28. So, if you have a Bible or on your phone, whatever, if you want to turn there, I'm going to read the, these verses for us. Luke 10, 25 to 28. This is an ama- I think this is an amazingly insightful passage on this exact issue. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, now listen to this question, right? Catch the question. What shall I do to inherit everlasting life? What work? Jesus, tell me the work. Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Catch it. Catch it. Do this. And you will live. What do I have to do? The whole law. And then you'll live. So Jesus cites Leviticus 18.5 as the summary of how to earn, how to earn everlasting life. Keep the law, you'll enter the new creation. Romans 2.13, right? The doers of the law will be justified. You want to be justified? You want to have a right to everlasting life? Do the law. We see a, we see a similar thing. Matthew 19, 16, we're not going to explore that passage, but we see the similar thing happen in Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Different events, but really similar questioning. Now, how do we know? Here's the follow up. How do we know? Because our question is, what's the reward? How do we know everlasting new creation life? was offered to Adam in the covenant of works. First, in general, the questions here in Luke 10 and those in Matthew 19 are, that are directed at Jesus were where he invoked, do this and live, well, they concerned everlasting life. So there's a general thing, observation. Specific, what's the second thing, very specifically, 1 Corinthians 15 42 to 44. Paul writes, What is sown perishable, what is, what is raised imperishable. Catch, catch the, the back and forth throughout these verses. Sorry, that's what I wanted to preface with. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. There's a escalation each time, right? It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Catch it right here. It is sown a natural body. He's about to quote Genesis 2-7 in a second. He's talking about Adam. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. If there's an exist, if Adam had natural earthly existence in the condition somewhat like we have now, there's a glorified existence, spiritual state. Built into creation was the potential for higher spiritual life, not disembodied life, right? It's a spiritual body, body, but life beyond even the possibility of corruption. Resurrection life, glorification. But if there is a natural existence, then that also awaits. So we see, we see the reward is glorification, spiritual life in the new creation. But let's pause. Right, let's, I think we, I think we need to reflect on, on some of this more because we know, we know Luke 17.10, that when you've done all that you've command, that, that the God has commanded, we should say, we are unworthy servants. We've done our duty. How then, if that's the case, how then could Adam earn a higher reward by his obedience? Let's think about family movie. Okay, it's special time, fellowship together, isn't it? I hope, for most families. But maybe one week, maybe one week, as we come up to, to movie night, parents offer their kids sweets, ice cream. If, if they clean their rooms. Some of the kids were upset about <laughs> The possibility of, of getting this but having to clean their rooms. But so, right, parents offer the additional good thing of ice cream on the condition of cleaning their rooms. Kids have to clean their rooms anyway, don't they? It's kind of built into living in your parents' house. You have to do what you're told. Mom, dad says, clean your room, you do it. But these parents, in kindness... To supplement even good family fellowship at movie night, they, they promise greater reward, even though the condition is simply what the kids have to do anyway. In, in like fashion, I mean, it's, it's so much like God is, God is the father of his people, right? In like fashion, God granted Adam and Eve wonderful fellowship with their Lord, in the Garden of Eden. There's not a thing they could have wanted. And yet, and yet, to supplement that amazing blessing of special communion, God promised them even higher reward of deepened communion with God in spiritual new creation existence if they simply did what they were supposed to do anyway. God kindly offered to give them even higher blessings. Now, keep that in mind, right? Because we're going to circle back to that in just a second. Very shortly. But, so we've seen the, re- the reward was spiritual new creation life. Final question, what do we do with this? I've gone on for a while. 
trying to unpack something that many of you know is probably my hobby horse. So what do we do with this? Is just this my opportunity just to talk about the things I like, or do I think this is important? Both. <laughs> but what do we do with this? I want to pull two applications from what we've thought about. First, because I know this has been a bit winding and a a lot of things have been said, so I feel the need to package the big takeaway. Right? What's the main doctrinal premise to hear? The covenant of works shows the difference between the law and the gospel. Those are different things. The covenant of works helps us understand the distinction between the law and the gospel. The law says do and live. The gospel says believe in Christ and live. The law says do. The gospel says done in Jesus. Therefore, because of the covenant of works and the law-gospel distinction it entails, we cannot mix works into faith as the reason we are accepted by God. Whenever we come to passages like Galatians 3, we have greater clarity why Paul distinguishes faith and works and why the one who believes lives. Since no sinner do this and live. Jesus has done the law in your place to earn your citizenship in heaven. So, first application, big category for you to take away, the distinction between the law and the gospel. Second, and here's where I want to camp more personally, right? The, the first thing was really just to kind of summarize, yeah, what, what's the big thing that makes this important categorically? But, but I want to camp more personally here. The covenant of works reveals God's generosity. Showing, showing that God always and continually can outgive Himself. God put Adam in the garden, right? An amazing place of communion with God, overflowing with blessings and everything that we could ever imagine for the good life. God walked with Adam in the garden and spoke to him directly in harmonious fellowship. And yet God still said, but I'll give you more. If Adam simply did what was expected, God would give him a life even better than perfect. God's generosity and God's goodness can never be exhausted. There, there is always, there is always more blessedness to experience as we grow closer to God and know Him more deeply, which we will continue to do throughout eternity. It doesn't matter how long you're in the new creation, you will never wrap your minds around God. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? But, Let's draw this more tightly to ourselves. Believer, this generosity, 
This generosity is why God the Father gave His Son for you. This generosity is why God the Son gave His life for you. Believer, this generosity is why God the Spirit gives Himself to you. Believer, since you are in Christ, this generosity has particular application to you. I, I really fear, I really, I think this is serious. I really fear that Christians subconsciously believe that God is stingy and that He's reluctant to give good things to you. I think we at least functionally think. We wouldn't say it because we know it's not true. We, we, understand, we understand what the truth is on paper, but it's not all the way in our hearts. I think we functionally think that we have to pry blessings from God by the right kind of prayers or by the pleasing things we do for him. Christian, you got to hear me. What we, what we saw about the covenant of works, it shows generosity is built into God's very character. God is inherently a giver. He has to be. The Father giving life to the Son, begetting the Son, giving the essence of the divine essence to the Son in eternity, the Spirit proceeding because life overflows. God is inherently a giver. Cannot be otherwise for God to be the true God. God is inherently a giver and and is abundantly good to his people. Now, we may be thinking, I get we've talked about before the fall, this covenant now, so we may be thinking that, yes, generosity was easy for Adam before he was a sinner, but I'm a failure. I've let God down continually. I sin all the time. I'm broken. And our hearts cry out, God, why would you be good to me? And there's some truth to that. But it's not the whole story, is it? The rest of the story is that God's generosity and love is on full display in giving His Son for you. We think about the end of, of Galatians 2, don't we? Where we locked onto those words that Paul wrote, the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Not some unknown group of people. For me. There is, there is truly, believer, hear this, there is truly nothing greater God can give to and for you than His own Son. 
but by building the potential for the for new creation life into our very nature as his image bearers, God set the stage. Because that's where we're going, right? God set the stage to send his son to succeed where Adam failed. As Adam was meant to obey the law and earn creation life for us, Christ has stepped in to fulfill the covenant of works on your behalf. Your behalf, believer. Yours. That's why the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam, right? So, even though the promise of the new creation was the expression of thorough generosity for Adam, God is ultimately, supremely, insurpassably generous and giving the new creation to believers by giving it to us in Christ, in His Son. Truly, God cannot be more giving than He is. Believer, I, I hope you will consider afresh how good God is to you. Romans 8.32, right? He who did not, he who did not spare his own son. We brush over these verses we know. Think about it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how? If God has if God has done that, which he has, Paul asks, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God's given you that, if God has given his son for you, the biggest thing there is to give, the greatest thing there is to give, how would he not give you everything else that you would need? Believer, that is God's commitment to you. Consider how generous your God is and how ready he is to be generous to you. I don't want to be superficial about this. I know life can be disappointing. That's that's the, the thing that catches right here, isn't it? You're telling me this. How do I see it? Where is it? I know life can be disappointing. And as Christians, even in the, even in the hardship, when we see that the, the truth simply is that God is generous, even even when it is hard to see, even when it doesn't feel that way, even when disappointment crushes upon us. Christian, you can trust 
you should trust. You can lean into even in that. Your God is acting in kindness for you. We can rejoice in our sufferings because we know God does not give bad things to his people. God's infinite generosity for those who are in Jesus requires it. God remains unendingly generous. All things work together for your good, believer. God remains abundantly good, unendingly generous. And he is ready to be your source of contentment and goodness. He is there for you. And he has made that clear in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, it is certainly easy to be caught in the moment of hardship, of struggle, of of disappointment. It's easy to think of the things we don't have rather than the things that we do have. It's easy to be ungrateful rather than swim in gratitude. And we pray, God, that you would help us see the truth, how generous our God is. You are that way in yourself, the triune God, the giver. You are that way for us since creation. As we say in the Nicene Creed, even the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, Christ who has given himself for us, the Father who has given the Son for us and with him will graciously give us all things. Help us to trust in these moments when things are hard to see your generosity. Help us to trust that even difficulties are your kindnesses. And in these hard moments, you will be there for us. And we do think about this in in application in very specific ways. We think of the several families in this congregation who are recently bereaved. We know there's great sadness there. And we pray you'll be of comfort. We know that there are health concerns. And we seek your comfort. And that you will remind us of your kindness. For so many things. For, for Adam, Lord. For, for Boaz. For Edward's mother. For Heather Aykroyd. God, we pray your generosity be on display and known to these people. We pray for those who have moved or who are about to move. We know it can be difficult to have to resettle or even choose to resettle. And it is difficult for us to see people go. We pray for Samuel, for the Hampsons, 
We pray for Angela as she prepares to leave. God, we pray that we would know that even in these moments when we wish things were otherwise, we can trust that you are being kind to us. Your generosity demands it. We pray for these situations with work where where people need work to meet their basic needs, where people need wisdom about how to conduct themselves, how to move forward with work, how to consider the future of their careers. Decisions have to be made, could be made, waiting anxiousness about what will be. Those who, who don't know what their jobs have in store or who bear with difficulties and pressures of overwork or hard things at work. God, we pray you help us to trust you even in these things. You are kind. We pray for us during this period of vacancy, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom. And that despite how a pandemic and a vacancy are not ideal circumstances. Lord, you indeed have been kind to us. You have added to us. We see people leaving now, but we are, we are glad to send them for the reasons they leave. And we pray you'd continue to be kind to us as you have, that even in this season, you would use even our most, be kind to us by using even our most feeble efforts to further the gospel, grow your church, and add even to this congregation. We pray for encouragement and strength in our midst. We pray that you will use the prayer meeting for these ends. We pray that you will use the ladies' fellowship and the men's fellowship, and we're thankful for that meeting yesterday and the regular meetings that the ladies have. We we pray you will use these things as means to be kind to your people here at London City. We pray, God, that you help us to know your generosity, even when things seem hard. And we pray that you would make your kindnesses to us manifest clear and plain not because we deserve it. We, like Adam, have broken the covenant, but because of Jesus Christ who has kept it, earned our place to be heard in your courtroom. We pray in his name. Amen.